Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We're continuing this theme of confession and repentance in these sermons, and we're so glad to have the Reverend Francisco Victa here this evening. Um, Cisco, as we in Presbyterian know him, is the church planting pastor of the Lebanon Valley Presbyterian Church. And um, you may remember that our church, um, our Christmas offering um, went to support the Lebanon Valley Presbyterian Church plant, and it's 60% of that offering went toward that need, and uh, we're so glad to be able to support this work. It was actually the largest Christmas offering we've ever taken in this church. We're very thankful to everyone who contributed to that. But um, we've seen um, the, the core group there has seen real answers to prayer. Maybe Francisco will share a bit of this, but... Um, they have a school building that they're allowed to meet in, that they've been able to get the New Covenant Classic Christian School kind of northwest of Lebanon. And um, Pastor Victor lives in Cleona, which if you know the Anvil, Cleona, Lebanon area, it's right between Anvil and Lebanon, kind of on the Lebanon end of things. But he and his wife and their eight children, am I correct? live there right on the main drag. So we were talking about that beforehand, but we're, we're just, the Presbytery, everyone in Presbytery is so excited about this church plant. And he's here to bring the word of God to us. We certainly come with great thanks and, and gratefulness to you and to this uh, church for your abundant generosity towards us. Our hearts are encouraged as we begin this new work. And uh, we are now, uh, st- we started November 1st worshiping on the Lord's Day. And so it's been, I think we're about 16 weeks or so of gathering on, on Sundays. And we've begun to see people come, uh, some whose churches are closed, as understandably, uh, over the past um, several months, and, and others who, for the first time, are uh, coming to church. And so we've been going through the Apostles' Creed, recognizing that we have with us um, uh, many or of our small group that are either new to the faith or are uh, still seeking and uh, on the margins, if you will. And we're thankful for that. Um, many times I've thought over the past several months, starting a church now, uh, and yet we have found that this is the Lord's work and it's His doing, and, and what an opportune time to have uh, a new work. And so we cover your prayers. We're so thankful for your uh, generosity and the support, and uh, knowing that this church is here is a sense of comfort. Um, we don't feel like we're isolated as much over there as we consider all of the churches in our presbytery that have been so uh, generous and behind us in this work. So thank you. Today we're looking at Luke chapter 9, Luke chapter 9, verses 9 through 14. Excuse me, Luke chapter 18, Luke 18, starting with verse 9 through 14. Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14, as we continue 
in this Lenten series in confession and repentance. The word of the Lord says, He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the riches of your word. We long to be fed by you. Open our eyes and our hearts by your spirit that we may commune with you, be drawn to the cross again and yield to you. For Christ's sake we ask, in Jesus' name, amen. This parable that Jesus has taught has two characters. And the purpose of the parable is clearly stated in the introduction. And then it concludes with an authoritative pronouncement. There's a familiar theme here in this parable, a theme that's found in several of the parables that Jesus taught. And it's a theme that depicts the sinful, the despised, the outcast being justified over the outwardly righteous. The parable begins with an announcement, an announcement of its purpose. Jesus told this parable to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else. The ESV tells us he told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Luke's use of the word some is interesting, isn't it? How many are some? What we do know is that there were people in the crowd that day who knew about God. Perhaps they knew about grace. They knew about righteousness, but they missed something that was so vital. They did not understand what it meant to be justified by God on the basis of a redeemer alone. And that is what the parable is about, because the problem, again, is identified at the very beginning. There were those there that trusted in themselves, and consequently, they looked down on others. And so Jesus, through this parable, addresses the problem. He addresses the problem with a solution, and that solution, of course, is to be justified by God. And you can tell by the way the parable begins. 
and the way it comes to a climax in verse 14 of how the man, that one man, went down to his house justified, that the parable is about how to be justified and how not, or how one is not justified. And so a consequential question is being asked, a a huge question. How can a person be made right with God? And in order to address that question, Jesus tells a story. He tells a story that is lifelike and would have been very familiar to the world of the original audience. The characters in Jesus' parable would have been very recognizable. A Pharisee and a publican, a tax collector. And the Pharisee was a man who was devoted to God. We have a certain prejudice towards Pharisees, partly because of the many stinging remarks that Jesus made about or to Pharisees. But today, try to give this Pharisee all the credit you can. He appears to be a good man. He wasn't a crook, as far as we can tell, nor a womanizer. He doesn't take what he has not earned. He's faithful to his wife. He appears devoted to God. And then there is this publican, this tax collector. He's not a good man. And the audience would know that. He's the worst kind of crook, a collaborator with the Roman Empire. He helps enforce oppressive taxes on his own people while skimming off the top a mafia-style enforcer. Perhaps he knows where to find the people the Roman government can't find, and he speaks his own people's language, and he uses that familiarity to enrich himself, and he bleeds from his own people all the money he can, and he lives like a fat cat. He's not a good man. The Pharisee is good. Not only good, he's religious. Not hypocritically religious, The outward devotion seems to be matched by an inward discipline. He puts his money where his mouth is, an upright citizen. He's the kind of guy you would want in your church or in your business. And so, two men, two men headed to the same place, the temple, both men going there to do the same discipline, to pray And Jesus was addressing those in the audience who were trusting in themselves. And he wanted them to see themselves in the Pharisee that day. For Jesus taps into the imagination of ordinary people and he prompts them to think, who are you in this story? But not only those who were in the audience that day, but to us, to the whole human race, in any age, in any culture to ask, who am I in this story? Because there's a vibrant realism here, isn't there? You've met these two characters before, somewhere in life. You've seen them, you've encountered them, and maybe you've met them in your own heart. What Jesus tells us about this good man, about this seemingly acceptable candidate for church membership, or maybe even church leadership, He will go on to tell us he's in bad shape. 
In fact, he's in worse shape by the end of the parable than this publican who is as rotten as they come. What's the problem again? Some trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Are there more alarming words in all of Scripture than those words? Because we arrive at the conclusion very quickly that this man trusting in himself and trusting in his own righteousness, that, that the immediate consequence of his self-righteousness is he looked down his nose at others. And note the man, the Pharisee's posture. It's vastly different than others who've encountered God in the Scriptures, isn't it? What's it look like when people encounter God in the Scriptures? What do people do when they encounter God, the God of the Bible? Do they laugh? Do they dance? Are they jovial or jubilant? Actually, what we see throughout Scriptures from Genesis to Revelation, when people meet God, they seem to be traumatized. We think of Moses on the backside of the desert when he sees the burning bush, and the Scripture tells us he was afraid to look at God. We think of Jacob when he wrestles with the angel of the Lord, and he comes away from that encounter with God with a limp in his flesh. We think of Job, who says, I am unworthy. How can I answer you? I put my hand over my mouth. And of course, we think of Peter when he says to Jesus in the aftermath of the miracle of the fishes that filled his boat, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. He doesn't see the great prosperity of the hall of fishes. He is in awe. He's in the presence of the holy, and he's traumatized. And we don't see that posture from the Pharisee, do we? We get the idea. He waltzes into the temple. He, he begins praying, and he pray, his prayer starts with thanking God, but it quickly shifts to talking all about himself. In fact, after that, I thank you, God, God isn't mentioned again. Because underneath the veneer of morality and religion was this self-worship. It's a very man-centered prayer, isn't it? His prayer opens with a thanks to God, but it devolves into this propping him, himself up. And we note if the prayer isn't arrogant, it's at least artificial as he talks about himself and he talks about who he is and how he's not like others. It's as if he's trying to prop up his ego or his self-esteem. Over in our town of Cleona, I drove out of our little town and I saw a sign, and actually there were several of them along the, the lawns and, and different businesses that, no, it didn't say mask up, a different sign. A sign that said, you are enough. And I found the sign very curious. That's all it said in a white placard in, in big, bold, black letters. You are enough. Whoever made that sign at least has the finger on the pulse of how people are feeling today. The people live with a nagging sense that they are not enough, that they don't measure up, that there's something more that they need to do. The maker of the sign could have simply said, you are righteous. He's getting the same point across. And he's saying, you do measure up. You are enough. But here's the problem. Reading that sign is not helping. 
The Bible from beginning to end plainly teaches that left to myself, I don't measure up. I am not enough because I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. My individual sins come from a sinful nature and the nature of all men is sinful from birth. And so scripture teaches that we are not enough. We've fallen short. But certainly we are spending enormous amounts of energy energy to try to be enough. All the social and emotional energy spent uh, uh, to find identity, to find community, to find distraction and entertainment, all attempts at self-justification and works righteousness, which are all doomed to failure because we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the truth is, we are not enough. We haven't done enough. We cannot do enough. And something deep down inside of us knows that. And when you come into the presence of a holy God, you feel the reality of that weigh down on you like a thousand pounds. You are finite and you're in the presence of the infinite and there's the crushing sense of your mortality. You come into the presence of the one who is holy and perfectly beautiful and good and your flaws and your sins and imperfections become so glaringly apparent. And this is why Isaiah would say in the presence of a holy God, I'm undone, I'm coming apart. So the fact that I am not enough, the fact that we've fallen short of the glory of God, the fact that we are sinners is not something that we can be coached out of or coached through with the right guidance. It's something that we need, the scripture tells us, to be saved from. Like a swimmer caught in the riptide, we need someone to save us. Someone who is enough, who is strong enough, who is pure enough to save. When we read this parable under the shadow of the cross of Christ, we know that salvation depends on the sacrificial love of Christ alone. He is enough, and it's only in Him that we can be enough. And that's why this seemingly pristine man is in bad shape, Jesus tells us. Because he went in and he prayed, by himself. Some translations say about himself. Most interpreters render it by himself. He prayed by himself, physically separate from others. And his location in the temple that day may be telling us something about how he saw himself, separate from everyone else. And we see in his own prayer, his view of sin was out there. It was a simplistic view of sin, wasn't it? In his mind, he's erected a division between him and them. The evil is out there. It's what's wrong with the world. Maybe that's why Luke stresses at the introduction of this parable that Jesus told the parable, look at verse 9, to them. It doesn't say he told the parable about those who trusted in themselves. He told the parable to those who trusted in themselves. He looks them in the eye. He pulls back the curtains. He gives them a window into their own souls and shows them that they're relying on themselves for righteousness. He doesn't talk about them. He talks to them. And that's so necessary. It is necessary for us today. Why? Because it's the proclivity of our hearts to think the source of all evil is out there. 
And without the Spirit of God impressing upon the truth of His Word on our hearts, we sit on our imaginary thrones and we presume that the problem is always exterior to us. It's the people out there. It's the politicians corrupting our decency. It's those sinners out there disrupting our noble way of life. And even like the first man, Adam, we even accuse God. It's the woman you gave me. And it's not until the Spirit of God awakens our hearts that we see with clarity that Jews and Greeks are all under sin as it is written. There is none righteous, no, not one. None understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. None is good, not one. And we begin to see that we are equally condemned and corrupt regardless of the wide variety of sin's expressions. And so one of the shocking parts of this story is that even in the discipline of prayer, this man is bowing before the idol of himself. And on the sacred grounds of the temple, standing before God, he's digging his own grave. Perhaps you've heard of the theologian G.K. Chesterton who was invited to participate in a series of essays on the subject, What is Wrong with the World?, And he said, sure, I will participate. And he sent in his letter to the editors. And he wrote, dear sirs, at the top it said, what is wrong with the world? Dear sirs, I am. A man only comes to that realization when he knows he has sinned against God. I am what's wrong. It's not what's out there. It's me. And that brings us to the publican. Verse 13, the scripture tells us he's standing far off and he would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beats his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And as we look at the publican, the first thing we've got to get off the table is this notion that this parable is all about a simple lesson of the virtue of humility. You know, the Pharisee was arrogant and the publican was humble. That's the lesson. Be humble. Oh, no. What this is is an instruction in the futility of looking at the wrong basis for your righteousness before God, looking at the wrong ground for your righteousness before God. It's to help us to know that the natural tendency of our hearts is to trust in our own righteousness. Unlike the Pharisee who is morally devout and religiously devout and upright. This publican was neither. But is Jesus discouraging these wholesome attributes? No. What Jesus is doing is exposing how we trust in those things for our right standing with God. God, I thank you I'm not an extortioner, not unjust, not an adulterer. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. There's nothing inherently wrong about any of those actions or lack of actions. And yet Jesus said that man went home and he wasn't justified before God. Does that mean we do the opposite? The opposite of these wholesome things? Of course not. But what Jesus is saying is don't trust in those actions of disciplines for your righteousness. Don't make that the basis for your justification before God. The Pharisee was looking at the wrong person. He was going deeper and deeper into himself and he was looking at the wrong righteousness, his own merits. And it came up short, so short. 
I was reading Machen recently, some of his last radio addresses that he gave in Philadelphia, and these words jumped off the page to me. He wrote this, he said, ask the men of really holy life in the history of the Christian church. Ask them, and they will tell you as they look back on their lives in the period before they became Christians, even in cases where their lives have seemed to other people to be fine, self-sacrificing lives, that all of that supposed goodness was just filthy rags in the sight of God. Mankind, until regenerated by the mysterious act of the Spirit of God, is unable even for an instant so to live as to really please God. The contrast of the publican from the Pharisee is that the publican shows us the cry of a penitent sinner who throws himself on the mercy of God and he trusts in the radical grace of God alone. He sees his sin for what it is and he sees himself in the light of the holiness of God, and he says, I am not what I should be, and I have not done what you want me to do. And that's the basis for his confession and his repentance. As our confessions, as our liturgies remind us, there are sins of omission as well as commission. We fail God in what we have done and also in what we have left undone. And our sin is a crime against a person, not just against a principle. It's God-centered. It's not just a human-centered concept, sin that is. And when we're confronted with the holiness of God, we begin to understand something of the weight of our sin. And we'll say exactly like this publican said, oh, have mercy on me, a sinner, have mercy. Because that prayer that we read in verse 13, it's a prayer prayed in a minor key. It's not self-indulgent, is it? There's no superficial happiness, not trying to hide deep despair. It's, it's not the confident tone of the Pharisee's prayer. It's not a happy and upbeat jingle like you hear when you're shopping in the shopping market or in churches that want to deny the reality of sin, the reality of evil, the reality of pain. Oh no, it's a prayer that comes to grip with the reality of his tragedy. I've hurt others so deeply and I've hurt you, God. Be merciful to me, a sinner. That's the prayer of a man who believes he's totally unable to lift himself out of his rotten condition. Oh, be merciful to me, a sinner. When he says, be merciful, he's not saying, let me off the hook, please. He's not saying, oh God, lower your standard. No. When he uses that word, mercy, it's the same word we use to atone for my sins. He's in the temple using language that's appropriate for a temple. Provide propitiation, atone for the sins of your people. Provide a substitute. You see what the tax collector did? He looked away from himself to God. He trusted nothing in himself. His prayer was a trust in God alone. And what's the verdict? A beautiful verdict that Jesus gives, a pronouncement. This man went down to his house and justified rather than the other. Author Michael Horton writes this. He says, Deep despair and deep joy belong to those who have encountered God in his law and his gospel. Deep despair 
and yet deep joy. Despair because he's a sinner, but deep joy because of this unexplainable grace and free justification. Oh, it's one of the great gifts of our worship to hear God's standard on the Lord's day and to respond in confession of our sin. Don't, don't let us get accustomed to that or comfortable with that or lackadaisical with that. It's a great gift that God gives His law, His word, His command, and we see so, how so awfully we have broken those commands. But then we hear of His grace and His word of grace that cleanses us, and we hear His pardon and the assurance that we're forgiven, and, and we are to walk in that and live in that same kind of posture in prayer, even as our Westminster Confession says, how are we to pray? We're to pray with a awful apprehension of the majesty of God and a deep sense of our unworthiness. He went home justified. Those are beautiful words, aren't they? And yet also alarming words for this other rather than the other. Beautiful words that a sinner can be saved by grace cleansed, forgiven, pardoned in Christ, saved by Christ, justified by the righteousness that Christ is for us. He went home pardoned. Jesus became sin that we might be justified, that we might hear that verdict, not guilty. Oh, church, today, look to Christ alone. Trust in Christ alone, not your righteousness. Trust in Christ alone for your right standing in God's court. Trust in Christ alone for your acceptance with God. Father, forgive us for our presumptuous hopes when we have denied our sin. Forgive us when we have thought our sins are not worthy of eternal punishment and we've tried to prop ourselves up based on our merits that are as filthy rags before you. Turn us by your spirit away from trusting in ourselves, away from making our good works our ground of acceptance with you. Turn us to Christ, cause us to trust in Christ with all of our hearts And then, oh, Father, give us the joy to believe and to know that our sins are pardoned and forgiven, not because of our acknowledging and confessing them, but for the merit and the blood of the Son of God alone. Grant this, we ask, for Christ's sake and in his name. Amen.